see the regular routine as uh, what we usually do. But mainly this, this is just to, you know, it's a form uh, into, you know, one can make meditation into something always special. So like a formal meditation retreat that we had the past two weeks, and then we had, we kind of changed it a bit. Uh, in order to uh, accommodate that kind of meditation retreat. But uh, the, how I see using this is, is, to, is it, it gives a form, a structure to monastic life. Uh, and therefore it, it, it can become routine and perfunctory. But then that's not its point, it's, it's a structure to, to use. Just to to know, you know, how things are affecting you. What is the uh, kind of result of uh, past two weeks, for example, where they had the what they call formal retreat. So in this, uh, there's always this sense of of look, this is the result right now of spending two weeks in kind of formal meditation. Then reflecting on it's not to determine whether it's a good result or a bad result, but say this is this is a result like this. So there's no judgment made about it, but just a mere willingness to recognize that at this moment, having spent two weeks of formal retreat, the result is like this. So like uh, this morning, I was. I was uh, looking out the window, my cootie at the pond in the garden outside, and there was a strong wind blowing. There was everything this tremendous kind of motion, uh, movement, and the, the kind of pampas grass and the various plants in the garden were bending over with the with the wind, and there was this almost violent kind of energy. And just noticed how easy it was to stay in the in the position of of the stillness, and this stillness seemed all pervading. It embraced the kind of violent wind, the movement of the trees and the bushes in the garden. So, like these, this is a kind of an intuitive recognition where the the usual uh, reaction of interpreting everything from a self-view is, is absent. So then the, there is much more. The, this 
the strength and the in the stillness rather than uh, and rather than getting uh, carried away with the with absorbing into the wind or the movement or trying to make any any problem about it whatsoever. When we talk about discernment, I like I like this word very much because uh, it uh, in the scriptural teaching, of course, uh, there's so many there's so many discriminative teachings, you know, with lists of uh, of indriyas and. 37 Bodhiya Pakyadamas and the four efforts and the five balas and the five indriyas and on and on like that too, where there is this emphasis on, on uh, say, um, discrimination, one thing from the other, in terms of a quite, quite, uh, uh, you know, subtle movements and changes like four different kinds of effort and and whatnot of, you know, seeing things in, in various different aspects. And then the discriminating mind oftentimes sees things in 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 a very dualistic way. So you, you know, you, you make judgments about them, good, bad, right, wrong, what should or shouldn't be. And uh, it's easy to see how when we grasp the the scriptural teachings with the, the dualistic mind, what happens is that we use it as a, in, we, we grab the, the idea of the kilesas, the hindrances or the fetters, is that these very terms, they uh, imply something that that is wrong we've got to get rid of. I mean, it's like there's, a, there's an automatic sense of of discriminating these are and making and in that discrimination some kind of value judgment made or assumed so that uh, that's how the, the mind is conditioned your emotional habits are conditioned around that also if you you know observe this you you see that the way we react emotionally is is uh, usually based on uh, sense of, a strong sense of self, fear and desire, and that then we have developed certain ways of, of uh, these to either indulge or suppress in the emotional conditions as they arise in consciousness. <coughs> so when we put that into the terms of discernment, and so I use this word discernment mainly from the position of the still point of the pure knowing, the stillness, uh, pure awareness. So then, that you, then from there, then the, there's discernment possible. Discerning then is, is what we, we use with panya, wisdom. So recognize that this is not a critical faculty. It's not making any judgment about the conditioned world. But there's, there's a wisdom and uh, the mindfulness to discern the difference between the conditioned and the unconditioned. And it's not saying the unconditioned is better than the conditioned, is it? And you think, I want, a, I want the unconditioned. I'm fed up with all that. All that conditioned world is just suffering. And uh, 
Bola Nietzsche Dukkan as a way of, of using the terminology to, um, to make some kind of judgment against the, the conditioned realm. Now even, you know, I've heard monks say, you know, like, even like love and beauty and uh, these kind of very, the height of kind of conditioned experience as being, as, as almost dismissing it as somehow worthless because it's impermanent and, and creates desires and, you know, way of, of thinking about these things in which we, uh, we can dismiss them and, and take a stand against them, like the whole world, the samsara is bad, or it's a realm of dukkha. It's created out of delusion, out of avicca, and then we hold to that view. Or in discerning, uh, then there, then it's not a matter of uh, of taking sides, but of of trusting in our in one's ability to to uh, be aware and receive the experience as it's happening good or bad, right or wrong, whatever emotional conditions that you're feeling. There's no shoulds or shouldn'ts in discernment the way it is. So then, they, then we, as you change from, from looking at it through attitudes of discrimination, preference, judgment, critical mind, good, better, best, bad, worse, worse, to this uh, discerning ability and this, this uh, that we can realize through awareness as an as a individual human entity. So in the, like, where in uh, Lung Po Cha used to, he, he gave a lot of day seminars, he gave a lot of talks on the eight worldly dharmas. The time they go, la, yot, sun reserve, so, my me, la, my me, yot, sun, in ta, tuk, and you learn these lists in Thai. Uh, la is like fortune, good fortune, or uh, yot is like having high status. Sun reserve is praise, and, and suk is happiness. And then there's just the, the other four. Worldly dhammas are the negation of those. Misfortune, uh, low status or no status, having no, being, you know, nobody, um, being criticized and, and, uh, suffering. So, these eight worldly dhammas, he kept, uh, encouraging us to contemplate them and, and then his way of, of kind of pointing was saying, you know, these are of equal value, you know. Good fortune, bad fortune, equal value. And I could understand that intellectually, you know, with, with an egalitarian American mind that I have, you know, it's easy to, you know, it doesn't matter, rich, poor, praise or blame. But then in, in uh, terms of... Uh, the uh, you know that that's a that's a head trip. So I can get the point, but then the then the uh, reality of it, 
of when when the actual conditions arise, where you're being praised or blamed, or you're successful, or you're or you're a failure, or you're happy, or you're miserable. People respect you, or they have contempt for you. Things like this. Then, of course, uh, is the is the, the you know it's, it's with all your ability to convince yourself that they're of equal value. That's not the way it seems when you're the miserable. <laughs> not they, there's equal value, but it's. But on emotional level, you know, it's uh, you know the the rational faculty it doesn't have any emotions. So when you get into the to the emotional world, mental world, then of course you're feeling this, and of course it becomes obvious we like being praised and we we don't like being blamed. Speak for myself. On a, <laughs> on a, on a you know, in my condition, my personality, it, you know, it's, uh, I like praise and I don't like blame. I like to be successful, I don't like to fail. I like to be respected and I don't like being looked down on. And I prefer happiness over suffering. Let's face it. <coughs> so as much as you can kind of convince yourself that there be equal value when the in the reality, on the emotional world, they, it doesn't seem equal at all, because one likes uh, one and one doesn't like the other. So it's it's the in the in the, in the stillness of the mind. Then we can get that perspective. We can't do it just through through agreeing with the teaching intellectually, and you can't manipulate your emotions so that they they uh, you know they seem equal. No, no, it doesn't matter. You can, you know, you can delude yourself sometimes. I don't really care what people think of me. It doesn't make any difference to me. But oftentimes, <laughs> you know, that you're just fooling yourself. So then, that's why I keep pointing at the stillness, the silence, because from that perspective, you relax into it, trust it, put, you know, refuge is a, uh, that that which is trustworthy, which you can depend on, then then the emotional world is of equal value. You know, so that you that the, the your emotional conditioning then can be seen in terms of what it really is. It's not it's not judging it in any way or or making any problem about it, but just recognizing being praised being successful, being happy like this. And in this way, you, you're, you're not, you know, you're not, you're accepting, you're allowing yourself to be happy and be successful and feel these things. There's no, no kind of, that kind of rem aloofness from the reality of those feelings. You're fully with them. They are what they are. But your relationship to them has changed from being caught into them and, and, and just receiving them as for what they are in the present. And then the reverse also is it, it works in the same to be disrespected or criticized, be a failure or be and suffering. And so this is not repressing or you know, because you're you're in the in this 
you trust in the stillness, then you can. You can embrace all these things, the whole, the whole range, you know, this whole world that you're experiencing, good or bad, pleasant or painful. And then, the, then as you, as you trust it even more, then you, you begin to feel the still point is, is infinite. You know, even the word point doesn't apply. It's very, it, this is where it's a, it's budget tongue. You have to realize it for yourself. Another danger in, that I see that people have when they, they hear me teach or talk like this is, it's just like with the cessation. The, it's, uh, we do tend to get the idea that, that the unconditioned is somehow the ultimate, uh, achievement. And so, you know, then we, we, and our relationship with the condition can be one of, in some way, resisting it or rejecting it or judging it in, <coughs> in a critical way. So where cessation doesn't mean like annihilation. It's not Armageddon. It's not, you know, the, the, the uh, 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 a nihilistic teaching. So, and yet thinking, th- when we think about it, it tends to go to those two extremes, like the Buddha pointed to the two extremes of eternalism and annihilationism. He said, my teaching is not eternalist or annihilationist. Dhamma Sukali Kanu Yoka, Atakilamatanu Yoka, and the Tamajaka Sutta. So, and yet, when you think about it, then what happens is you, you, your thoughts immediately go to one extreme or the other. So, like with Theravada Buddhism, it's so easy to, uh, to get an annihilationist attitude because uh, it's the way it, it's presented. It, it easily lends itself to a belief in annihilationism or nihilism. In theistic religions, it's easy to just get into an eternalist perspective. So that's the limitation of any convention, isn't it? Is, um, is that recognizing that that uh, language is very limited function, thinking and thought is, is you can't think your way to liberation, to enlightenment. You know, thinking gets in the way. And it, uh, and if you, and we're not against thinking, you know, like you've got to stop thinking, that's another one that doesn't work. But, uh, to, to, to begin to trust in the intuitive awareness more than the thoughts, the ideas. So then that, that is, uh, what they call transcending or it, it embraces thought. Thought in, is belongs in that, you know. So, it, but we're not caught in that dualistic trap of thinking. So recognize that thinking is a dualistic function. That's that's its limitations. There's nothing wrong with that, but it you can't trust it. It's not not a not a it can't it can only be used for you know skillfully. You know, hopefully that we use. Uh, thinking ability skillfully, 
Or we can just get caught in, in thinking habits, this obsessive thinking and, and uh, views and opinions that we have, so that we're, we're caught into that realm endlessly. So then the, this, the fact that before you think, there's a space, isn't it? You begin to you recognize the sound of silence, or just, a, you know, if you deliberately think, words, then you realize that then the, the, the space around the thought, you're, you're recognizing that that awareness is of like nothing really. It's not, you know, we're, it's, it's, it doesn't seem uh, in worldly terms to be of any value or be important. So it seems, uh, you know, to probably to most people, uh, totally ridiculous. But it's in, as we began to recognize, realize that, and then we have, a, we can get perspective on this, on how we think. And, and then also it, it, in, it includes, it, ing, it, it embraces the emotional habits that come and go. And the, the body itself, the whole world arises and ceases in your consciousness. So you can't get your mind around that through analyzing it, but only through, through sati panya, sati sampachanya, through insight. Now in some of the scriptures and that, they warn against the tendency to grasp the unconditioned, you know, to seek, and that's a kind of annihilationism, isn't it? Like, like in Theravada they often use nirvana and samsara as, op- as uh, opposites. You know, they think that it's one of those dreadful Mahayana teachings where they say Nirvana Sangsara are the same thing. Well, that's not true. They really, you know, if, they, if I gave this talk in Thailand, I'd probably be up for a lot of criticism. <laughs> because uh, it seems like as Nirvana kind of cancels out Sangsara totally, you know, you can't have them together. And recognize that these are words. They're only words. N-I, B-B-A-M-A, Nibbana. Now, for someone that never heard the word before, they might be some kind of South American dance. (laughs) Sangsara, they probably think, is a a perfume. It is, in fact. But the, but yet we can empower those words with you know like make them sacred so that that you you know if it it by making them sacred then they tend to be more than what they are. So samsara is bad; it's a realm of suffering, and nibbana is uh, liberating peace where you're extinguished forever. That kind of. So, this is when you try to define them, isn't it? It, it, end, it? You know, you end up with easily kind of in the thinking mind making judgments about them. One's certainly better than the other. Nibbana is a, you know, that's the goal, and Sangsar is what you're trying to get rid of. But in the reality of this moment, 
you know, if you want to use those terms, explore or investigate with those Nibbana and Sankhara terms, when there's non-attachment, when there's just stillness, the Sankhara is still going on. You know, you still see and feel and you still have emotions and and thoughts and the wind's blowing and the trees are bending and people are being born and people are dying and things like this. But in terms of of being deluded by it, by being attached to it, by identifying, by being limited by that one perspective of things are, no longer does it have that hold. But it certainly belongs in whatever permutations it's, it's taking. Now, there's a, like, they call this Mahayana teaching, but I don't see it in these, you know, this is the biases that people form in, in these various traditions. But uh, in, and I'm ta- speaking more from a, a direct uh, realization of it, you know, what is it directly in terms of one's own experience? You know, I can, I can speculate about it in terms of Ajahn Chah or the Buddha or the Garjana or the Dalai Lama or something like that and you know, Arahants are like this and, and uh, Bodhisattvas are like that and, but that's all speculation, isn't it? There's Ajahn Chah and Arahant. Uh, is the Dalai Lama an Arahant or is he a, is he a Bodhisattva? And which is better, being a bodhisattva or being an arahant? Then people have serious arguments around these issues. <laughs> so, remember, Ulung Pachap in Manjusri Institute years ago, <laughs> there are, you know, the Manjusri Institute is a Tibetan uh, uh, institute, and they were talking about that, well, Theravada just has arahants, and the kind of party line of, of that tradition. And somehow Arahants, you know, didn't rate very high in, in their tradition. But in ours, you know, they're, they're the tops. Can't get better than that. Now this is the discriminative mind again, isn't it? That to create good, better, best. And, uh, and then it brings up our own desire to have the best. Isn't it? You know, if you can have the greater vehicle, or the ultimate vehicle. <laughs> Why settle for a lesser one, you know? <laughs> so that's, the, that's the way thinking works. Like, like Nibbana and Sankhara then, don't be frightened of those words, like don't, don't make them into, you know, into terms that they're so high for you, you, you know, like Nibbana anyway, so remote, so distant. But you have a right to use it. What is Nibbana in terms of your own experiences? Well, I have, you know, I haven't had any realization. I'm not an Arhant, the ones that realize Nibbana. Then you go off again into the, into the party line bit, don't you? So you, you stop yourself from, you know, from really exploring that with the Sati Sampachanya. So recognize that these are these are these are this is a structure and a convention that we have 
in its tradition, Pali Canon, very good, not complaining, very skillful convention. But how we use it, you know, and recognize that, that you have the right to use it. You know, it's, it's not something that, that uh, you know, it's like because you're here and you're, you're committed to this practice, then you have the right to use them. So this is where you're, you can see, you know, just like taking the word Nibbana and saying it to yourself, and what, does it, what does it bring up? You know, what, what does it, in your, in, in your consciousness, when you hear that word, well, for me, it used to mean a goal that is way beyond me. That's the ultimate. You know, that's what I suppose Lung Po Cha has realized. Because you want your teacher to have it and realize it. <laughs> well, what good is all that? You know, you think just it, uh, you know, you, you've already made it impossible for you to ever realize it because you you've determined that there's something beyond you. But if you, if you, you know, you, you begin to investigate that whole tendency, you know, like I'd, I'd ask myself, what is Nibbana right now? Just to take on, I'd say, like a question. So, in terms of, not whether I've realized Nibbana or not, it's not in terms of, have I realized Nibbana? And then, then you get into, but thrown back into a kind of personal memories and attitudes about yourself, your practice. But say, take the core, what is Nibbana is here and now. Then you can observe just what that might bring into your mind. You know, let it be whatever it is. You know, don't try to convince yourself that, that what comes up shouldn't be, but recognize it's like this. So that that word itself brings up maybe a feeling of being, uh, you know, something too high for you or whatever. I mean, whatever that word does to you, that's all you have to know. It's like this. So it's not judging it in any way. It's just accepting without believing in what you're actually feeling or thinking. It's recognizing, allowing it to be, but you're not committed to that view. Sangsara's easier one, isn't it? You can see it's easy to, to explore Sangsara because it's, it's quite obvious. So, Sangsara is uh, like a burning fire or, you know, all the, the ways it's described. It's, it's where, you know, you, you die, you get born, you die, and you get reborn again, you go to heaven, and, and if you're bad, you go to hell. And that's Sangsara. We've got all these realms in it. The Preta realm, the Ashura realm, you get born in, as an animal, or you get born in the Ovechi hell, unmitigated, relentless misery forever, and then you might get born as a Devada, higher levels, into Brahmalokas, and that's Sangsara, the whole, the whole range, you know, from Brahmaloka to Ovechi hell. Or the more kind of prosaic attitude that most of us have of being egalitarian types. We think Sangsara is just a kitchen sink. <laughs> it's the stove. Cooking over a hot stove. It's 
Anything like that. We can just put it into kind of the dreary terms of our materialist mind. I mean, you can have more color, colorful things like with Devadas and Pretas and whatnot. But whatever it is, the, the recognized conditions are, what, you know, can take, take the most beautiful to the highest, most perfect, to the lowest, most horrid, and, and all ranges in between those two extremes. So, samsara is interesting. Interesting realm. It's both, you know, wonderful and horrible, boring, absurd, fascinating, inspiring, ridiculous, vulgar, refined, the whole, it includes everything. When you get into Nibbana, I mean, the realization of Nibbana, not interesting at all. <laughs> so one has to give up trying to find interesting things to do. And so the more and more... Well, it's like, sorry, then suddenly it becomes more interesting sometimes. But noting that, trusting that, and, and really allowing yourself to explore, you know, this. Anything, when I go to Nibbana, then I'll just be in a state of bliss, and the samsara will not affect me anymore, and, and I'll just live in this state. I mean, this is another wish, isn't it? To attain eternal happiness, or eternal bliss. Now, that's what we can mean by Nibbana, a kind of state that once you get it, then you're, you're high forever, you know? You're leaving by cruel world, <laughs> I'm leaving you all behind, transcending this whole disgusting realm. <coughs> but that, that's not the way it is in terms of our, uh, we can act, how we can actually realize the reality of this moment is not like that. And the reality of this moment is like this. The body, the breath, the silence, the state of mind, like this. And then how would you put that in that paradigm of Nibbana Sangsara? You know, so that's a, a kind of like a conundrum for you to contemplate. Or the condition, the unconditioned. You know, these are just terminologies that you can use. But don't, don't attach to the terms. They're just, they're like, you know, they're to help you awaken rather than positions you take, fix on, in, in terms of, uh, in, in regard to the terms that we use. Well, that's enough for this evening. <laughs>